0: Welcome to Evidence 101, Part 2. To send a question to the presenter, type in the box below the Participation tab. Program materials for the session can be found under your Supplements tab. We also encourage everyone to uh, complete a survey of this program. You can find the link under your viewer window. It is my pleasure now to introduce our presenter for the next two hours. Michael the III, Esquire and LLM, partner at DeBlis Law. Uh, Michael, the floor is yours. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Mike DeBlis. Um, it's a pleasure to be presenting to you today on the topic of Evidence 101, Part 2. Um, this is a continuation of Part 1 of the program that I did um, last month. Um, this is uh, definitely an, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm a trial attorney, and um, as you can see a little bit about me, um, I uh, also I have a myriad of other interests um, outside of law, um, from running to acting to writing. Um, And um, these days I find myself in court quite a bit, um, handling a variety of cases in both state and federal court. And um, this presentation basically is uh, an overview of how I approach the rules of evidence. Um, You'll see that it's a very practical, hands-on approach to evidence. Um, I by no means uh, get into the theory and the analysis as would a law professor in law school but I do rely heavily on hypotheticals to help shepherd me through uh, the rules and the exceptions and the exceptions to the exception Um, and I think that the approach that you'll see here is one that is very conducive to being uh, quick on your feet and being in a situation like um, you know where you're in court every day and you need to have uh these at the tip of your finger so that you can make quick instantaneous objections if they uh, if the you know the situation calls for it um, so i hope that this presentation will um, come alive to you in ways and speak to you in ways that will help you in your practice these were the major areas that um, i covered in the beginning of Evidence 101, Part 1, Uh, like I said, I'm going to pick up from where I left off, and that was in character evidence in criminal cases. Um, By character evidence in criminal cases, um, I'm now going to discuss specific instances of prior misconduct by the accused. These are the defendant's other crimes offered for a non-character purpose. So um, if you're getting a sniff of where we're going, we are going into the Um, mnemonic um, mimic um, uh, rules that uh, you might remember from law school. Other crimes or prior acts of misconduct by a defendant are not admissible during the prosecutor's case in chief if the only purpose is to prove criminal disposition. In other words, if they're offered to show that because of the defendant's bad character, he likely committed the crime currently charged. However, as you can see here, there's a big but prior crimes or prior acts of misconduct may be admitted at the initiation of the prosecutor when the misconduct is relevant to prove a material fact other than character or disposition. In other words, to prove some relevant issue separate and apart from bad character. So we can encapsulate that into um, a rule here that says that although prior accused misconduct is not admissible to show criminal disposition, unless, of course, the accused first offers good character evidence by opening the door, it would it would still be permissible if relevant to show motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, or absence of mistake or accident. So here are some tips for approaching mimic evidence. Um, and I guess before I even launch into the tips, um, it traditionally, it's used by the prosecutor um, to bring in evidence that um, is quite inflammatory and evidence that uh defense attorney is going to be quick to object to. Um, and uh, it's not always introduced, it's not normally introduced by the defense. However, there are exceptions to that. Um, I always caution that uh, whenever uh, a prosecutor is introducing evidence that is this Um, you know, prejudicial and um, is doing so under one of these mnemonic devices of uh, motive, intent, preparation, plan, you want to quickly jump up on your feet and object on the basis of the um, prejudicial effect far outweighing any probative value. Um, So now, mimic evidence is never admissible to prove criminal disposition or propensity to commit a crime. So that's the fundamental tenet. But as we all know, when this evidence gets into the hands of the jury, despite being instructed otherwise, they typically do uh, use it um, as a uh, way of proving criminal disposition or propensity. That's what makes it so dangerous. How does this arise? Well, it's a criminal case. Defendant has not opened the door, and by that I mean the defendant hasn't opened up the door in the sense of introducing evidence for his or her good character. The defendant is charged in the indictment with one crime, but now the prosecutor wants to introduce evidence of defendant's other prior crimes or prior acts of misconduct. So it's not necessarily limited to prior crimes, it could be prior acts of misconduct. You must decide always Uh, what the purpose for which the other evidence is being offered is. If it's being offered to show disposition, it's improper, but if it's relevant to some other issue in the case, it's admissible. So how can we really um, understand the nuances of this rule? Um, We do so through hypotheticals, at least that's my approach. Um, In this hypothetical, Tony Soprano is the vice president of HSBC Bank, And you can see here, he gets himself into some trouble. He gambles illegally and loses nearly half a million dollars. In order to pay his debt, he then embezzles from his employer, HSBC Bank. Uh, Then he falsifies the books to cover up the embezzlement. He discovers that auditors are uh, coming to check the books on Monday. So what does he do? He steals the key to get into the bank on Sunday night, and then sets the bank on fire in order to destroy the books. So as you can see here, a very egregious um, hypothetical, but one that is going to prove helpful to us in many ways because it's going to illustrate uh, the workings of this um, special uh, mnemonic device. Now let's assume that Tony is charged only with the crime of arson. Uh, basically, you know, uh, lighting the place on fire. Assume also that Tony offers no good character evidence and that he doesn't testify. Can the prosecutor, as part of its case-in-chief, introduce the illegal gambling, the embezzlement, the falsification of the books, and the theft of the key? If so, for what purposes? Well, this is how we would analyze this. As we know, these are all relevant, separate and apart, from character or disposition. And this would be the argument that the prosecutor makes in order to introduce this inflammatory evidence. First, uh, the fact that Tony owed a substantial debt of half a million dollars for illegally gambling demonstrates that he was under great financial pressure, not to mention uh, possibly desperate to pay it off before something um, even worse happened. So, the argument goes, he'd have a motive to steal from his employer, HSBC Bank, and that, as you could see, would be part one of this, um, or part two, the actual the embezzlement, as well as uh, the gambling bit. So you can see in one fell swoop that um, the gambling bit, the illegal gambling, and then the embezzlement of the monies from the bank to pay back the gambling debt would come in under this um, uh, under the argument that um, Tony had a debt for illegally gambling and that he was under financial pressure. And so he had a motive to steal from um, his employer, HSBC Bank. And in one fell swoop, we see that the illegal gambling and the embezzlement could come in through um, this exception. And second, Tony's falsification of the books is evidence of a common plan or scheme to cover up the money that he embezzled from HSBC. In doing so, he exploited his position as vice president of the bank for personal gain. And the theft of the key shows opportunity. So um, this, these uh, other acts would come into evidence. Uh, There are examples of issues on which prior misconduct of the accused may be relevant independent of character or disposition. We just saw one. Um, These other crimes of past misconduct may be shown to prove what um, we know by the acronym MIMIC. Um, And here I'm just going to go through each one individually. Uh, For motive, uh, let's assume that the defendant is charged with murdering a detective. The prosecutor offers evidence that the defendant killed his wife three years ago. Is that admissible? Of course, that's not admissible. Um, As you can see, that would be extremely prejudicial to the defendant, the fact that he has a prior um, murder conviction and he's in trial right now for um, um, for murdering a detective. Um, And the theory here is that the prosecutor wants the jury to infer that if defendant killed before, then surely he'd kill again. Compare. What if the detective, who is the victim in the latest, in this latest homicide, was killed because the detective was about to arrest defendant for the murder of his wife? So you can see we're switching things around now. Is this admissible? Yes. The defendant had a motive to kill the detective to avoid being rest, arrested for murdering his wife. Um, so, you know, if, um, you know, Tony was so narrow minded to think that, you know, killing the detective off before he arrested him was going to somehow um, keep him free of any um, charges for murdering his wife, well, of course he was wrong. But, um, you know, here we can see that there is a clear cut motive now for um, the defendant being charged with the murder of the detective, uh, essentially to uh, avoid being arrested for the murder of his wife. It's a burglary case. The prosecution offers testimony that the defendant needed money to defend himself against three other recent charges of burglary. Would that be admissible as mode of evidence that defendant needed money to defend himself against three other charges of burglary? No and it's uh, highly prejudicial. The jury will think that if this man committed three other burglaries before, then he probably committed this one too, and so it would be inadmissible. Uh, We have another murder case. The defendant claims that the victim was his friend and that he had no reason to kill the victim. As you can see here, the defendant is putting this into play. In rebuttal, since the defendant has put motive in issue, the prosecution may introduce evidence that both the defendant and the victim took part in an earlier bank robbery and that the victim hid all the stolen m- money. That evidence would be admissible to prove motive uh, for the homicide, you know, for the murder of the victim. Um, so you can see here that, you know, oh, what a web we weave when we seek to deceive. Um, you would, of course, want to counsel, uh, your client in a case like this, where there are such, um, you know, ex- where there are such connections between prior acts and the current case, that by putting motive in issue, you're opening up the door to this. But even uh, if motive wasn't an issue, uh, the, there are ways, as you can see here, for the prosecutor to introduce. The evidence that um, the defendant and the victim took part in an earlier bank robbery and that the victim hid all the stolen money. So all that to say uh, the defendant doesn't have to put motive in issue in order for this to be admissible. Intent. uh, Here we're talking about proving absence of accident. Um, In this hypothetical, the defendant is charged with receiving stolen goods. He claims that he was unaware that the goods were stolen. Uh, what if the prosecutor offers evidence that the defendant had received stolen goods on five prior occasions from the same thief involved in this case? Would that be admissible? Yes, it would. Identity. The murdered victim is found with a 45 caliber pistol, the murder weapon next to the body. The pistol was owned by the mayor, uh, but was stolen in a burglary of the mayor's mansion three years ago. Wow, so now we're getting into some um, you know, like investigative type uh, facts. May the prosecutor show that the defendant who is charged with murder of the victim burglarized the mayor's house three years ago and stole the gun? Absolutely. As you can see here, that uh, paints the trail to identity um, because it makes no sense why or, you know, or how um, the uh, defendant or how the Um, Defendant would have come upon this weapon if it was previously owned by mayor. But when we uh, add this additional fact as prejudicial and as inflammatory as it is, it provides context into how the defendant would have come into possession of the gun. Modus operandi, another way to prove identity. The defendant must be charged with a crime that is distinctive and unusual. It has to be his trademark. So let's say, for example, that the defendant is charged with stabbing the victim in the groin. Two years ago, the defendant stabbed another victim in the groin. The prior crime would be evidence of modus operandi um, because, as you can see, we're talking about a very distinctive and unusual um, way of stabbing a person. And so the fact that he had done so to another victim in an earlier incident would be evidence of his mo. Um and there's also cases where uh, involving a defendant who's charged with forging a doctor's name to a prescription in order to illegally obtain drugs from a pharmacy. Um, defendant denies he did it. Can the prosecutor show that the defendant forged a script three years ago to illegally obtain drugs? No, uh, for the, you know, for reasons we've discussed earlier regarding the character evidence rule. It's being used to show that if the defendant had forged a doctor's name to a prescription before in order to obtain illegal drugs, then he'd do it again. But what if the p- fictitious doctor's name used on both occasions was uh, this long name, Aloysius Kavorkian Peabody? Would that be admissible? Yes. Why? Well, AKP is the defendant's distinctive and unusual trademark. As you can see, these are all arguments that the state's going to be proffering. We have a defendant now um, that's charged with a bank robbery, and we're now talking common plan or scheme. Can the prosecutor show that the defendant stole the truck the day before the bank robbery? No. What if the truck was used in the bank robbery as a getaway car? Yes, how the defendant came to be in possession of a car that wasn't registered to him and that he was not authorized to be using would be admissible um, to uh, show how he came into possession of, would be used to show, would be admissible to show um, how he came to be in possession of it, um, especially since it's not going to have been registered to him. Um, This shows a common plan or scheme for the preparation of the robbery. Remember all the time that mimics subject to 403. Um, 403 rule of evidence 403 is that evidence relevant to show motive, intent, identity, and common scheme may be excluded if the judge believes that the probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. Um, In this example, uh, we have uh, Paul charged with a bank robbery. The prosecutor offers to show motive by evidence that um the defendant was recently released from prison for sexual abuse of a child and needed money to support his heroin addiction. Would that be admissible? Absolutely not. The probative value of introducing evidence um, as inflammatory as that as a um, you know as a, a sexual abuse um, offense uh, would far outweigh any uh, probative um, you know effect. And so um, the fact that there might have been a connection between his release from jail and his lack of money, and that might have been a motive for a bank robbery, is still not going to be admissible here because of how sexual abuse of a child, a conviction for that offense, shocks the conscience and would, uh, would absolutely uh, prejudice the jury against um, the defendant. MIMIC applies to civil as well as criminal cases. Uh, there is special rule for cases involving sexual assault and child molestation. Prior similar acts are allowed to show propensity. Um, in civil or criminal cases, charging the defendant with sexual assault or child molestation, the defendant's prior acts of sexual assault or child molestation may be shown by the prosecution. This is um, disposition evidence. Um, And, you know, what we're basically saying here is that if he did it before, therefore you're entitled to assume that he did it again. Um, Notwithstanding, there doesn't have to be a charge for the prior act of sexual assault to be admissible. Uh, We're going to uh, skip, for the time being, the best evidence rule, because there's so much um, that I want to cover in the area of witnesses and um, cross-examination leading up into um, impeachment. Um, So please bear with me and uh, I'll get us into our next topic here. Witnesses and testimonial evidence. Uh, We're going to be talking here about competency, form of examination of witnesses, opinion testimony, cross-examination, and impeachment. And to give you an overview of uh, where we'll go after this, we will jump into the hearsay rules uh, following um, this section on witnesses and testimonial evidence. Competency. There's a general rule of competency Under Rule of 601, every person is deemed competent to be a witness except where state law supplies the rule of decision. So for example, a diversity case um, where state law supplies the rule of decision, a child witness to be rendered competent would have to satisfy the three common law requirements. The test for competency under the federal rule of evidence is called the minimum competency test. Uh, What's required here is personal knowledge and a declaration to testify truthfully. So it's a very low um, standard. Federal rule of evidence is very liberal. Uh, The basic policy is to dispense with strict competency requirements, let the testimony in, and then let the jury determine the weight that they're going to apply to such testimony. Personal knowledge and oath. What we're talking about here is perception, uh, memory, communication, sincerity, Uh, For example, with perception, the witness must have observed something. For memory, witness must have remembered at least some of what he observed. For communication, witness must be able to relate at least some of what he heard. For sincerity, uh, witness must demonstrate an appreciation of an obligation to tell the truth, and that would be done through the oath or the affirmation. Uh, The witness must, one, have personal knowledge, and two, take an oath or affirmation. The common law disqualifications are abandoned here. Uh, Use of interpreters is permitted. Um, As far as competency of the judge or juror as witnesses, uh, believe it or not, there is reference to this in 605 and 606. Um, And this is basic. uh, But neither the presiding judge nor any juror may testify in the trial in which uh, he or she is sitting. On the other hand, an attorney could be called as a witness. Uh, There are dead man acts. What are these? Well, these are um, situations where an interested survivor um, cannot testify for his interest against the decedent or the decedent's representatives about communications or transactions with the decedent um, unless there is a waiver. And this is in a civil case. So there are some elements. Uh, The witness who testifies must be an interested witness. The witness must have a direct stake in the outcome of the litigation. If there's a neutral witness, you can stop right there. The witness must testify for her own interest. The witness must be testifying against the decedent or the decedent's representatives. If the interested witness is testifying for the decedent or his representatives, then the dead man statute does not apply. It applies to transactions or communications with the decedent, it's strictly civil, doesn't apply in a criminal case, and the dead man statute can be waived by representatives of the decedent. Uh, You don't want to assume that the dead man statute applies unless the facts explicitly state that it does. Um, The state dead man statute applies in federal court if the state whose substantive law applies has such a statute. okay Uh, we're going to talk about um objectionable questions now um narrative and leading so by narrative what i'm referring to here um is tell us everything relevant that happened on that day Um, by leading questions we are um we're referring to questions that suggest the answer um and these questions are Put to a witness who's likely to use the suggested answer. So for example, um, isn't it true that the sound you heard was like a pistol shot? Such questions are generally not allowed on direct examination. So as you can tell, as you can see here, narrative um, is what is um, admissible for on um, direct examination. Leading questions are generally not allowed on direct examination. Leading questions, however, are permitted in certain situations. Uh, cross-examination, as we all know, if the prosecutor were to call your client as an adverse witness, uh, you could cross-examine him, but you couldn't ask him leading questions. You can lead on direct as to preliminary matters uh, when you're examining the adverse party or a genuinely hostile witness. Uh, The other type of objectionable questions are misleading or compound or argumentative. Um, This is a, you know, this example, have you stopped beating your spouse would be one because that's quite argumentative. Uh, But also I've seen uh, lawyers put questions to witnesses that are um, sometimes so long that you literally have to chop them up into smaller pieces because if the witness answers yes, you don't know what part of the question the witness had has answered yes to, um, so it's best to ask shorter questions um, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, to examining a witness. Um, but um, you know, the the number one objection you might want to raise when you hear a long, long question that you aren't sure how your witness is going to respond to, because you don't. There's so many, you know, questions within that one within that big question is to object on the ground that it's uh, misleading or compound. Um, There's a basic rule here that the witness must testify from his own independent recollection of an event. Um, There are times, of course, where the witness, um, can't remember everything that they were called to testify about. Um, We need to understand here that the witness Uh, usually cannot read testimony from a previously prepared document but may use a writing in aid of oral testimony um, in two situations and these are situations when the witness can't remember Um, they are uh, refreshing recollection and recorded recollection so what is what is meant by refreshing recollection Uh, When a witness's memory fails, like when they forget something um, during the course of their testimony, anything can be used to jog their memory while they're on the stand. And uh, yes, I include uh, the example of a bowl of fettuccine Alfredo. Um, You could literally uh, bring anything tangible, including food, into the courtroom to help jog the witness's memory. Uh, The witness need not have prepared the writing herself, nor must the writing have been prepared at or near the time of the event. The writing itself need not be admissible in evidence. There are some limitations. The witness must testify without looking at the writing. So it's, um, if the witness were to take the writing and then start reading from it, then uh, all bets are off. Um, So here, if an examining counsel hands the writing to the witness, and gives her a moment to refresh her recollection, and then she testifies from her own recollection um, without looking at the writing itself, that's that's kosher, that's fine. Now, what about the writing that the witness referred to? Can opposing counsel inspect it? Yes, opposing counsel has an absolute right to inspect the document, to cross-examine using the document, and to even introduce relevant portions of the writing. Even if the witness had not been shown the writing while testifying, but had reviewed the statement prior to coming into court, the court could order production of the writing for opposing counsel, assuming it's in the interest of justice. Here we have an example. We have Mrs. Smith, um, her home was burglarized. The defendant is charged with the burglary. The prosecutor calls Mrs. Smith to testify to the things that were taken from her home by the actor. She can't remember some of the items. The prosecutor has a copy of a tabloid newspaper that reports details of the burglary. What can the prosecutor do to uh, help refresh Mrs. Smith's recollection? Well, he could show her the article to refresh her recollection. Now, what if the defendant objects? What ruling? Well, if if the defense objects to the use of the article to refresh on grounds of improper authentication. Okay, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna raise a couple of objections that the defense makes. We're going to say that the defendant objects to use of the article on, on three separate grounds. First, improper authentication, second, best evidence, and third, hearsay. Which one is the most likely to prevail? Well, the judge will overrule every objection. Uh, The only purpose of showing Mrs. Smith this article was to help refresh her memory uh, of what items were stolen from her home on the night of the burglary. And remember, as we discussed earlier, anything, including a bowl of fettuccine Alfredo, could be used to refresh the witness's memory. Is there a foundational requirement for the writing? The only foundation is that the witness must say, I've drawn a blank, I don't remember, Um, that's it, the witness must be unable to remember. You can't refresh the recollection of a witness just because you got the wrong answer. You will see prosecutors attempt to do that time and time and time again, they don't get the right answer and they attempt to um, uh, use a prior document to rehabilitate the witness, um, not to assist them in recollecting Uh, their uh, memory. Uh, Is the article admissible in evidence, a newspaper article from the uh, hypo is that article admissible in evidence at the request of the prosecutor? Yes, it is. Um, If the tabloid is used to refresh, made the defense counsel see it? Absolutely, can uh, the defense counsel use it in cross? Yes, and can the defense counsel introduce the article into evidence? Yes. Any writing that you use to refresh the memory of your witness is fair game. It's entitled not only to be seen, but used, and even introduced into evidence by your adversary. Here, the defense counsel. Recorded recollection. If the witness is unable to remember all or part of the details of a transaction about which she had personal knowledge, uh, her own writing shown to be reliable may be admitted in place of her testimony. Uh, there, uh, there must be a foundation um, for re- recorded recollection. Um, and that requires a showing that number one, the witness has personal knowledge. Two, that the writing was made by the witness or under the supervision of the witness. Um, if the writing was made by someone other than the witness, then it must have been adopted by the witness at the time of the writing. Third, the writing was timely made by the witness. By timely made, we're referring to it being made at a time when the matter was fresh in his or her mind. The writing must be accurate, and the witness must be unable to remember all or part of the details of this transaction. That's a necessity. So you can see here that there's a high bar for uh, recorded recollection. Um, and you can the elements can be boiled down into personal knowledge. The writing must be made by a witness or under the supervision of the witness. The writing must be timely made at a time when the matter was fresh in his or her mind. The writing must be accurate and the witness must be unable to remember all or part of the details. Uh, The writing is admitted by being read into evidence. Is recorded recollection hearsay? Yes, but it's admissible as an exception. Opinion testimony. Um, now we're talking about lay opinion. Uh, of, again, a very low standard. It's admissible if rationally based on the perception of the witness. For example, the witness testifies I saw the car and it was traveling at about 25 miles per hour. That's admissible. Second, it must be helpful to the trier of the fact. a fact. Um, an example might be, in my opinion, The, um, oh, this is going to be an example of what is um, not fair game. In my opinion, the driver was grossly negligent, absolutely not admissible, even if rationally based upon perception, because, um, you know, that's the issue for the jury to decide. So helpful to the trier of fact doesn't mean that they can substitute their opinion for that of the jury. A lay witness may not testify as to legal conclusions, and that's the one we just saw earlier about, um, in their opinion, the driver was grossly negligent, not admissible, it's a legal conclusion. Scope, the following areas are permissible for a lay witness to testify, speed and other physical measurements. Uh, A proper form of lay um, opinion was that the car was going 50 miles per hour, uh, or he was five foot eight, he looked like he was, you know, weighed, you know, 180 pounds. He was wearing a blue shirt. Improper forms of lay opinion. The car was driving recklessly. The car was driving carefully. The bridge was properly constructed. These are legal conclusions and a lay witness is barred from testifying as to legal conclusions. Um, The other form of testimony that is permissible for a lay witness is uh, for identification of a person. Sensory descriptions, value of property, familiarity with a person's handwriting, um, sanity, but not that a person is mentally incompetent. So the witness couldn't say uh, she's a schizophrenic. Physical condition, um, a proper way would be, he appeared drunk, she was intoxicated. Improper, he's an alcoholic. That's a legal conclusion requiring expert opinion and it would be improper. Expert opinions, Uh, so now we get into um, this whole area um, of expert opinion. Uh, There's four basic requirements for expert testimony to be admissible. I can remember some of the cases uh, going back to law school, and um, I may or may not have referenced them for you, uh, but uh, they do stick out in my mind. Uh, first, an expert must have special knowledge, skill, training, education, or experience. Uh, the court has broad discretion to determine what constitutes such type of skill. The opinion must be helpful or assist the trier of fact in understanding the evidence. An appropriate subject matter is um, means that the opinion must assist the trier of fact. Um, that subdivides into into a number of individual requirements. Uh, The methodology must be reliable. And second, the opinion must be relevant. Uh, Reliability and relevance um, are conditions to admissibility. This means that the proponent must convince the trial judge by a preponderance of the evidence that these conditions have been satisfied. So the first um, strand of that was uh, reliable methodology. And the second tra- um, the second strand to this was that the opinion must be relevant. Um, also, this notion of fitting the facts of the case is um, a way to kind of um, appreciate uh, what is being, what, what that condition entails, that the opinion must be relevant. It must fit the facts of the case. Third, the witness must be qualified as an expert. In other words, the opinion must be within the expert's field of expertise. Qualifications need not be formal or academic. An expert can be qualified based merely on experience. For an an example, uh, we have an expert truck mechanic who was qualified as an expert mechanic. Um, He may not give an opinion as to the speed of the two cars at the point of impact. That type of opinion is beyond the scope of the expert mechanics field of expertise. He could, however, testify to, um, you know, uh, uh, the workings uh, or the lack of workings of um, the, uh, of the engine, um, you know, or um, the, the belt or something of that nature, that is the domain, that's his domain as, the, as a truck mechanic. Uh, but again, anything, um, any opinion as to the speed of two cars at the point of impact would go well beyond the scope of his field. To give an opinion on the speed of the cars at the point of impact would require an expert on accident reconstruction and uh, that's the distinction the expert must possess reasonable certainty or probability regarding the opinion Um, and so that's why the attorney is going to ask the question um, and this is a very specific precise question that must be asked Um, expert do you have an opinion based upon reasonable um, in this case, medical certainty, because the expert is a doctor. Those are the key words that have to come out of the mouth of the attorney questioning the expert in order for the expert to uh, give his opinion um, regarding um, you know, regarding the issue. Uh, the expert must possess reasonable certainty of probability regarding the opinion. Basis of opinion by the expert. On what facts may an expert base his opinion? Well, his opinion must be supported by a proper factual basis. Uh, Facts supporting the opinion must be either facts within the personal knowledge of the expert or facts that would not be within the personal knowledge of the expert, but which could be supplied to the expert in court by the evidence, usually through a hypo. Or there's even a third way. An expert may base his opinion on facts one that are not within his personal knowledge and two that are not in evidence in the case as long as the facts are of a type that experts in the field would reasonably rely upon in making out of court professional decisions so let's just go back um, for the first one which is facts within the personal knowledge of the expert that's the most straightforward one an example might be the testimony of a coroner who had been qualified as an expert as to the findings of the autopsy. These are facts perceived before trial and would be uh, within his personal knowledge and would be a proper basis for his opinion. Um, How about the second um, form of uh, of facts? How about those that that are not within the personal knowledge of the expert, which could be supplied to the expert in court by the evidence, usually through a hypo. Facts about a fatal accident made known to the expert at trial despite her lack of personal knowledge. An example might be, assume, Dr. Gross, that the following facts are true. Now, here's the thing. While you can use a hypothetical question, the facts in that hypothetical question must have been admitted into evidence, so you can choose a random hypothetical question um, that consists of facts that were not admitted into evidence. That's where the fault comes in. And that's why um, attorneys that sometimes ask a loaded question like this have um, objections Have uh, objections come in that are sustained. And that's because they are not, the question uh, does not rely on facts that have previously been admitted into evidence. Hypotheticals are fine so long as the facts that compose those hypotheticals have previously been admitted into evidence. Okay, and then this is the third form that we just discussed. Um, this is the one involving um, an expert being able to base his opinion on facts that are not within his personal knowledge and, they're, and that are not in evidence in the case as long as they are of a type that experts in the field would reasonably rely upon in making out-of-court professional decisions. So for example, we have a doctor hired to testify for the plaintiff in a personal injury action. He bases his opinion in part on a radiologist report of what the plaintiff's X-rays revealed. The witness doctor had never seen the actual X-rays. So neither the X-rays Uh, nor the radiologist report are in evidence. Can the doctor still give his opinion? Yes, and why? Well, um, if you've had CAT scans done in the past, uh, you know that doctors rely um, oftentimes exclusively on the radiologist report at, um, you know, when you go back for your follow-up exam to um, tell you what the CAT scan revealed. Uh, Seldomly does the doctor actually analyze the CAT scan or the x-ray, him or herself, uh, before rendering the opinion. They they, uh, usually rely on the radiologist report. And so, in this case, even though the x-rays and the radiologist reports uh, were not in evidence, uh, the doctor's opinion is still admissible because, as we can see here, the doctors uh, traditionally rely on radiologist reports. Um, in making um, out-of-court professional decisions. Okay, so we have now in uh, Federal Rule of Evidence 705, disclosure of facts or data underlying expert opinion. An expert need not give the reasons for her opinion on direct examination. However, she may be required to disclose such information on cross-examination. Opinion on ultimate issue. An expert witness may give an opinion on an ultimate issue. For example, testimony as to whether a testator had sufficient mental capacity to know the nature and extent of his property um, and the natural objects of his bounty at the time that he made his will would be a permissible area for expert opinion. That area is rife uh, for expert opinion. But what if the expert is asked, in your opinion, did the testator have legal capacity to make a will? that is not proper. And why? Well, that's the issue that the jury um, has to decide at trial. So even though it does go to an ultimate issue, it goes well beyond what's permissible because it snatches the issue away from the jury. An expert uh, very simply cannot be asked to directly state whether the testator had legal capacity to make a will. Uh, rule of evidence 704b uh, there's a limitation on an expert's ability to give an opinion on ultimate issues in criminal cases and it's a severe limitation an expert may not give an opinion as to whether a criminal defendant did or did not have a particular mental state constituting an element of the crime charge or defense thereto. so as we all know in the world of criminal um offenses uh each criminal uh, statute has a mens rea element. And that's one of the elements that the state uh, or the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, And so the jury is tasked with making that decision. An expert can't substitute their opinion for that of a jury. And. In this case, it's a murder case. The defendant pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. An expert witness cannot be asked, in your opinion, do you think that defendant was insane at the time of the killing? So similarly, as I just discussed before, with um, an expert not being able to give an opinion as to whether a criminal defendant did or did not have a particular mental state, um, it also applies what's good for the goose is good for the gander. That same expert can't be called to testify as to whether um, a defendant uh, satisfied a, um, a mental element uh, for the defense that's being alleged. In this case, it's a reason of insanity defense. And so the expert could not be asked whether the defendant was insane at the time of the killing. Takes the issue away from the jury. Uh, learned treatises. Uh, the plaintiff sues the defendant for damages claiming serious injury resulting from the negligence of the defendant. injury The injury is that the defendant has an extra hole in his head. Uh, Gray's Anatomy on page 22 states that such a hole is bad news. Uh, question one, can the plaintiff start out by reading, reading the text to the jury? Absolutely not. So question two, can the text be used to impeach contrary opinion by the defense expert, that it's normal for a person to have more than one hole in his head, yes. Uh, So our rule here is that a learned text treatise or article concerning a relevant discipline is admissible as an exception to hearsay if uh, number one, the testimony of your own expert that the learned text treaty or article is authoritative, Um, Second, your own expert actually relied on the text or treatise that you want to put into evidence on direct, or it was called to his attention on cross-examination. And it's admission on cross-examination of your opposing expert. All right, so let's just go back and fill in a little bit, um, some uh, missing pieces of the puzzle. Testimony of your own expert that the learned text, treaty, or art, or article is authoritative. Authoritativeness for a learned treatise is established first by expert testimony, or second by judicial notice. It's a standard in the field. So for example, Gray's Anatomy. Um, and again, <clears throat> the second requirement is that your own expert actually relied on the text or treatise that you want to put into evidence. Uh, or that it was called to his attention on cross-examination. And then the the admission on cross-examination of your opposing expert, Uh, for example, Dr. Adams, are you familiar with Gray's Anatomy? Do you consider it authoritatively? If the answer is yes, then you can use it. Uh, Question three, can the text be offered for its truth? Yes, under the federal rules of evidence, it is admissible for its truth as an exception to the rule against hearsay there are some limitations. The expert must testify um, at trial or deposition unless the judge takes judicial notice. The treatise is admitted by being read to the jury. The text itself is not received as evidence unless offered by the adverse party. Now we get into cross examination. I'm just going to take a quick drink and I'll be right back with you. so what better place to start than with the sixth amendment under the sixth amendment a party has the absolute right to cross-examine a witness who testifies live and what i want to say here is um it's something it's a theme that's been running through most of my presentations but um it's worth noting here whenever you uh whenever, whenever you have Whenever you're involved in a case representing a defendant and the state is attempting to introduce evidence that is highly prejudicial, anytime you can raise your objection to the level of constitutional magnitude, uh, you tend to be a lot closer to one of two things, uh, getting a favorable ruling or be at the very least getting a hearing. Um, judges are deathly afraid of making a bad call, especially when there is the potential for impinging or infringing upon the constitutional rights of the defendant. So whenever you can raise it to constitutional magnitude, um, my in my experience I found that I either get a favorable ruling or at the very least I get a hearing to flesh out um the issue it may not always be a testimonial hearing of course it depends on the facts uh but i at least get a forum to um go into more detail and specifics and to make a record as to what uh as to as as to why this as to why there is such uh, such uh uh um an infringement upon my client's constitutional rights So for example, a witness refuses to answer any cross-examination questions after testifying on direct. The direct must be stricken. If the witness has a heart attack and dies on the stand before cross, you move to have the witness's direct stricken. Cross-examination is limited to the subject matter of the direct examination and matters affecting the credibility of the witness. There are three areas for cross. Uh, These are questions or issues addressing the scope of direct examination, leading questions, and then impeachment. For me, cross-examination is one of the most exciting and thrilling parts of a trial. Um, I probably spend a disproportionate amount of time preparing for a cross-examination because I really like to be as well prepared as I possibly can um, so that I can go off book. And so that if I get a gem or a pearl from the witness that I can follow that and not um, ignore it in order to get to my next question. I like the ability to be engaged in um, a conversation with the witness. Um, Of course, you uh, only ask questions that you know the answers to and um, you're you know in a bit of and and when you're cross-examining you're always in what i call um you know you you set boundaries for yourself um and you know when to strike you know when to um you know probe but you always want to be guided by the fundamental rule that nothing bad should ever happen to your client on your watch while you're cross-examining the witness Um, because if it does, then it has an even um, uh, stronger impact on the jury because it's almost as though because you're up on your feet asking the questions that you have, you're condoning or endorsing it because it was brought about by your questioning. Uh, The jury knows that, of course, bad stuff is going to come out when the prosecutor asks their questions, but if it comes out, on your watch then you bleed um, by like a thousand pricks so you want to be very careful um, and yet the more crafted I find I am when I go into a cross-examination um, the more the, 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 the more I'm able to go off book or off script so to speak when I get a gem from a uh, from a witness uh, that might uh, unfold that might reveal a bias, a hidden bias or perhaps something that is favorable and will advance my client's defense. So you wanna be open to this and that's why it's always very important to listen. Example of going beyond the scope. Uh, the plaintiff testifies that he was bitten without provocation by a large brown Rottweiler with a front, uh, white front paw. At trial, the plaintiff calls the defendant as an adverse witness and asks her one question. Do you own a large brown Rottweiler with a white front paw? She answers yes. The defense attorney stands up and asks uh, the question, uh, isn't it true that your dog is gentle and never bites unless provoked? The plaintiff objects, is the defense attorney's question admissible or inadmissible? So recall now that uh, the positions have reversed. Uh, The defendant was called by the plaintiff and asked that one question. You as a defense attorney, Um, see this as a golden opportunity to get out to the jury that this dog was gentle and never bites unless provoked. Um, Is the objection made by the plaintiff uh, overruled or is it sustained? It's inadmissible. Uh, Why? Well, the defendant's answer goes beyond the scope of direct examination. Where one party calls the other as an adverse witness and then asks only one question, the scope of that examination is limited to that one question. And here, the scope would be limited to the question of ownership because the question that was put to the defendant was merely, do you own a large brown Rottweiler with a white front paw? Uh, Again, it goes to ownership. By calling the opposing party as an adverse witness, a leading question is allowed on direct. Here, defendant was an adverse witness. The leading question, isn't it true, your dog is gentle, doesn't deal with the issue of ownership. Uh, which was the only issue brought up on the plaintiff's questioning. It goes beyond ownership and it deals with temperament. So it goes beyond the scope of direct and the objection would be sustained. Uh, Now we jump into some credibility and impeachment rules. Uh, The focus is only on one issue, and that is the credibility of a witness. The credibility of a witness may be attacked by any party, including the party calling him. There are instances where a party would want to impeach their own witness. Uh, One might be where the party is surprised by the witness's hostile testimony. Another might be where the witness's testimony is positively harmful to the calling party's case. And a third is where one party calls the opposing party as a witness in the case of an adverse witness. Um, In the case where one party calls the opposing party, as we just saw, the normal rules of impeachment are reversed. The witness can immediately be impeached by the calling party, and then the witness may be subject to direct exam by her own attorney. Uh, So we have forms of impeachment. um, And this is where it gets technical. Uh, But I'm going to try to be as specific as I can in uh, differentiating uh, intrinsic impeachment from extrinsic impeachment. So what do we mean by intrinsic? Uh, By intrinsic impeachment, we're talking about evidence brought out from the mouth of the witness. Um, In other words, from the actual testimony of that witness. So what what is meant then by extrinsic impeachment? It refers to all other evidence that doesn't come from the mouth of the witness the main area of extrinsic impeachment deals with contradictory evidence from other witnesses discrediting the testifying witness all right so very important that we um, ground these uh, we ground these, uh rules or the definition of intrinsic and an extrinsic impeachment, because it's going to wreak havoc if there's any confusion later on as we proceed through the hypotheticals. Once again, intrinsic impeachment is from the mouth of uh, the witness, him or herself. It's their actual testimony. Extrinsic impeachment refers to anything, um, any other evidence not coming from the mouth of the witness. There are two questions relevant to each form of impeachment. Can you use extrinsic evidence? And if you can, do you first have to give the target witness the opportunity to explain or deny the impeaching facts? So now we get to the collateral matter rule. Let's set the stage here. The collateral matter rule deals with contradictory evidence on collateral matters. So let's first define what is meant by a collateral. Matter. Well, I find that it's sometimes easier to know what is meant by collateral matter by um, discussing what it isn't. Um, and in this case, collateral isn't material. In fact, it's the opposite of material. Um, material means an issue of significance um, that has great relevance to um, a matter. A collateral matter is an issue that isn't material to the issue being litigated. In other words, a collateral matter's only relevance is to show uh, the contradiction. It goes to credibility. Uh, The matter has nothing to do with the substance of the claim or defense. That might be an even more specific way of defining what's meant by material, um, something that goes to the heart of a claim or or the defense. So here we have a hypo. We have an eyewitness testifying for a plaintiff, and the eyewitness describes an accident which occurred at Maine and State at 2 a.m. There's no question that the witness was present at the scene and that she was in a position to observe it. On cross, the witness says that he was present at Maine and State at 2 a.m. because he was walking home from his sick grandmother's home. Now, you know from having uh, hired your investigator and doing some background Uh, research that this witness wasn't walking home from his sick grandmother's house. In fact, he was um, at a brothel and he was walking home from the brothel at that that, uh, ungodly hour of the night. So can you call a witness to show that the witness lied? Can you call your own witness to show that that witness lied about where he was coming from? No, and that's why we need to know the collateral matter rule because the basis for the objection is um, the collateral matter doctrine and it would be sustained. The collateral matter doctrine prohibits the testimony of other witnesses to show that this eyewitness lied about where he was coming from when he observed the accident. So how far can you go to contradict a witness? Impeachment by contradiction of a witness is limited. Cross-examiner is bound by the answers given by the witness as to collateral matters. And that is unsavory, that you need, uh, that you have to somehow live with uh, with the witness lying as to where she was coming from at that ungodly hour. But notwithstanding, no extrinsic evidence is allowed to contradict that witness as to what is uh what is uh what is what is um a collateral matter Uh, so if we stated differently collateral evidence offered to attack the credibility of a witness may be inquired into on cross of the witness intrinsically from his or her own mouth subject to the court's discretion the most common way of doing this is by means of a prior inconsistent statement But extrinsic evidence, such as testimony of the other witness that may have seen that witness leave the brothel and might have even been with him while he was at the brothel, um, you know, would not be admissible. Um, So, uh, but extrinsic evidence on the same question with regard to collateral matters may not be introduced. So, here's an example where collateral evidence may be inquired into intrinsically. The witness testifies on direct examination that the defendant is an honest man. On cross-examination, the witness may be asked, did you know that the defendant committed three burglaries in the last year? Now, this is a beautiful question if you're a prosecutor. It's a dreadful question if you're a defense attorney. Why? Well, the question is being asked intrinsically to discredit the credibility of the witness. And that's because whether the witness answers yes or no, it is damning uh, to the witness. Why? Well, if the witness were to answer no, did you know that the defendant committed three burglaries in the last year? Then how well did he actually know the defendant to come to court and to testify um, that uh, he was an honest man? Um, You know, that would definitely um, show that the defendant didn't know, that the witness didn't know the defendant well enough. Otherwise, you know, he may have hesitated before coming into court and making such a blanket statement that the defendant was an honest man. Now, what if the answer to that question was yes? Did you know that the defendant committed three burglaries in the last year? If the witness had answered yes to that question and still testified to the jury that the defendant was an honest man, then you can tell that he is lying through his teeth and that he's doing anything to help perhaps his good friend. So whether the witness answers yes or no, either way, this is an attempt intrinsically to attack their credibility. Um, extrinsic evidence, uh, plaintiff's witness testifies that the defendant drove through a red light at an intersection and that the defendant was wearing a green sweater at the time. The defendant cannot call another witness to testify that his sweater was blue. That is, you know, a an issue that is not material. Um, that extrinsic evidence on a collateral matter would be inadmissible. Uh, accrediting your own witness. Can you bolster the credibility of your witness before his reputation has been attacked? Um, No, um, you can't do so. Bolstering of your own witness um, unless there has been an appropriate, uh, there's no bolstering rather of your own witness unless there has first been an attack, um, an impeachment on his credibility. So the bad must come before good. Here's a hypo. Ulani testifies to some facts. Uh, There's no impeachment. Grant takes a stand to tell the jury that Ulani, the first witness, has an excellent reputation for telling the truth. Would that be admissible? No. A prior consistent statement, once again, is not admissible to bolster the reputation of your witness until there has first been an appropriate impeachment. Bad must come before good. In this next hypothetical, Yulani testifies to material facts. There's no impeachment. Grant takes a stand to testify that Yulani told him the same thing some months earlier. Is Yulani's prior consistent statement admissible to bolster Yulani's testimony? No, once again, there must first be an impeachment attack. The prior consistent statement would be admissible if the statement is one of identification. So what do we mean by um, one of identification? A prior out-of-court statement of identification that was made by a witness who testifies at trial is excluded from the definition of hearsay and therefore is admissible. So we're talking um, in this realm of photographic uh, arrays where um, an individual makes a positive identification after looking at a series of mug shots. These tend to be the cases where prior consistent statements could be admissible. Let's see how these work. Um, In this hypothetical, we have Vincent. He's our victim. He's mugged. Uh, Shortly thereafter, Vincent, in the presence of Officer Smith, picks the defendant out of a properly conducted photographic array and identifies the defendant as the mugger. Six months later, at the defendant's trial, Vincent makes an in-court identification of the defendant as the mugger. May Vincent also testify that he picked the defendant out of a properly conducted photographic array shortly after the mugging? Yes, he may. Um, The same case, except instead of Vincent testifying to the array identification, Officer Smith who administered the photographic array testifies that Vincent picked the defendant out as the mugger. Is that admissible? It is. Same case, except Vincent is confused at trial and testifies that he does not recognize the defendant as the mugger. Can Officer Smith now testify that the defendant, uh, testify that Vincent, not the defendant, picked the defendant out at the time he viewed the photographic array? Yes, he may. And now, this is the same case, except that Vincent doesn't testify. So I really want to highlight that. Um, I want to highlight the fact that Vincent doesn't testify in this case. Now, uh, Officer Smith uh, is called to testify, and he wants to um, introduce, by way of his oral testimony, that Vincent made a positive identification of the Um, attacker in the photographic array. Is that admissible? No. And the reason is because there's no right of confrontation here since Vincent hasn't testified at trial. So the person who who made the very identification must be in court and subject to cross about his prior statement of identification. Officer Smith's testimony is hearsay and would violate the defendant's right to confrontation under the Sixth Amendment. So this goes hand in hand with what I talked about earlier, raising your objections to the level of constitutional magnitude. And in this case, it's custom tailored to, uh, to um, be vulnerable to an objection on the basis of um, Sixth Amendment right to confrontation um it was clearly violated here because there's no opportunity for the defendant through his attorney to cross-examine vincent as to uh what happened during the uh identification um and this would uh rise to the level of a constitutional infringement Um, so definitely raise those up to constitutional magnitude Now, if a prior statement of identification is properly admitted, does it come in for its truth? It does. So this is why it's so damning uh, for a defendant with these identification cases. Um, The prior out-of-court statement of identification made by a witness is not hearsay and is admissible for its truth. So in this example that we've, the thread of this example that's been running through, um, uh, the theme of this example that's been running through, all of these hypotheticals is this uh, is this very um, uh, very damning identification made by uh, the victim um, in selecting the defendant out of a photographic array. Um, what we mean by it coming in for its truth is that not only would it come in to show that the victim selected the defendant in the photographic array, uh, but it would also come in to show that uh he was the one at least according to the victim that had perpetrated this uh crime on him um and so the, this is why it's so damning um and also it's interesting because uh there's been a lot going on in the world of these identifications uh, specifically um, arising out of cases. Um, I can remember the case of Henderson in New Jersey that came out uh, quite some years ago um, that uh, really focused on this idea of how suggestible, um, you know, victims are and how with law enforcement being in the room with them and initiating these um, photographic arrays or these lineups uh, with Um, you know, with real-life individuals behind a one-way sheet of glass, you know, how we have to be very careful because it's so easy for someone to pick out the wrong person um, and how that could, um, you know, just cripple, you know, um, a defendant's, uh, you know, presumption of innocence. Um, and um, how we need to be so careful about this. And I could not agree more as a defense attorney, um, and also someone who's an avid uh, reader and who uh, has done a lot of uh, research into suggestibility. Uh, There was a psychological study done uh, some years ago, um, and it was written about in a book. Um, I think the name of the book was Blink, although I'm not 100% sure. And just to give you some context, um, because it's such a fascinating area right now and I feel like our court is coming back to revisit some of these issues about uh, suggestibility in photographic arrays and photo- and, and uh, actual lineups but um, a person was um, <laughs> a person was exposed to uh, some poetry and some uh, autumn and spring-like images um, in a in a a room by themselves. And then they were given a note and told to take that note to a person down the hall in another room. And lo and behold, um, they read the poetry and um, then took the note and walked down the hall, knocked on the door, the person who answered the door uh, was on their phone and put up their finger, their index finger, um, as if to uh, represent that they needed a little bit more time and that they would be with them shortly. Well, lo and behold, the person who had read the spring poetry, autumn-like leaves, um, very peaceful, pacifying, um, you know uh, lit- remnants of literature stood at the door and waited patiently for not just a couple minutes, but I think the study revealed that uh, they waited for nearly 15 minutes before um, you know but uh, and did nothing just stood at the door and then when the person got off the phone they accepted the note and then the comparison was to a person to us to another person altogether who was exposed to something that was uh very uh, was opposite to the poetic um and um you know and, and relaxing um you know uh, uh, literature that the first person had been exposed to. The second person had been exposed to some type of um, reading uh, or, um, yeah, some, some, some type of literature that, um, you know, uh, got them to be in like a very hurried uh, mood. And uh, they were given the note and told to go down the hallway and uh, deliver it to the person behind the door. They got to the door, knocked on the door, Um, the same person with the cell phone answered the door and had the cell phone to her ear and made the same gesture, putting up their index finger as if to say, give me a second, I'm still on the phone. Well, the person at the door who had read the exciting and um, you know more urgent literature um, insisted on giving the note to the woman who was on the phone, notwithstanding the fact that she asked for a second, um, and that she would be with them in a second. And so that just goes to show how suggestible we as human beings are. And you can imagine how this issue gets magnified a thousand times in the setting of a police station where there are detectives. Who are present and where the person may have just been the victim of a very serious offense and is determined to do everything possible to help the police catch the person who did that to them. So, not to go off on a tangent, but it's a very interesting uh, area, um, you know, this whole area of impeachment and prior uh, consistent statements and out of court statements of identification. Now, impeaching your own witness. Um, a party may impeach its own witness. It's rare, but it happens. Uh, methods of impeaching your adversary's witness. There are four basic impeachment techniques. Sensory defects is one, um, a showing of bias, interest, or motive to misrepresent or to exaggerate is another. And, and character is a third. And then, fourth is the prior inconsistent statement. So, we're going to take a a look at each one of these and then we're going to be moving on to the world of hearsay. So sensory defects, these go to the credibility of a witness. The manner of impeachment by sensory defects may be either questioning the witness intrinsically or extrinsic evidence regarding the inability of the witness to perceive, observe, or remember. Uh, Foundational requirement, uh, the prior questioning as to the sensory deficiency um, before introducing any extrinsic evidence. Uh, So for example, do you normally wear glasses if you're going to launch an attack into uh, whether uh, they were wearing or were not wearing their glasses at the time uh, they made the observation? A person's religious beliefs are inadmissible to attack credibility. Uh, How about a showing of bias, interest, or motive to misrepresent or to exaggerate? It may be shown by intrinsic questioning or extrinsic evidence after a foundation is laid by inquiry on cross of the target witness. The court is lenient here. Uh, Simply ask the witness about the facts which form the basis of the bias. This, of course, is a great vehicle for admitting evidence that normally wouldn't be admissible. Uh, What forms can bias be shown? Interest in the outcome of a case, economic or marital relationship, Hostility or favoritism, fee paid to an expert. Now, remember that bias is always material. It is never collateral. It is uh, it, it goes straight to the heart of a person's credibility. And that is uh, fair game um, when a witness is on the stand after um, swearing an oath. So we have a hypo here. It's a three-car accident caused by the defendant. Um, You and the witness, uh, you and Wanda are severely injured. And once again, it's a three car accident that was caused by the defendant. At trial, uh, Wanda testifies against you and for your opponent, um, suggesting that you were driving recklessly through the intersection when the defendant's car ran the red light and hit you. Can you show that this witness received $50,000? Can you show, yeah, that this witness received 50 grand settlement of his personal injury claim from your opponent yes it shows bias in this next hypothetical um wanda testifies for the prosecutor against your client who is on trial for robbery can you show that wanda was arrested for drug dealing and is awaiting trial yes why well it shows that wanda has an interest in testifying favorably for the prosecution so that uh, uh, she might get a better deal, and that the prosecutor might be more lenient with her. Uh, character is the next form of impeachment. Uh, here, we talk, we're we talking about felony convictions not involving dishonesty. This is an outright character, uh, as, a, as an outright character attack. We're talking about prior convictions of crime bearing on untruthfulness. Uh, this would be a character attack as well. Specific acts of deceit or lying which can be explored bad reputation or opinion for truth or veracity. Once again, these are all character attacks. And then we have prior inconsistent statement. So let's uh, talk a little bit about prior inconsistent statement. It is uh, by far the most common form of impeachment. The credibility of a witness, this is what the rule says, the credibility of a witness may be impeached by showing that on some prior occasion, the witness made a statement different from and inconsistent with a material portion of the witness's present in court testimony. Um, This is why we as attorneys, especially litigators, love paper, we love paper any um, type of formal proceeding that a witness who's being called to come into court um, to testify about at trial is fair game for impeachment. And uh, in in preparing for a trial, one thing that I always do is scour through any uh, grand jury transcripts uh, that I have as well as any formal statements made by witnesses at the police station. I go through those with a fine tooth comb. I pick and choose my areas of where I will want to ask the witness questions. Uh, I also am very cognizant about um, uh, contradictions that, and inconsistencies that the witness might utter during the course of trial. So I've devised like, Um, a method where I can quickly get to that witness's statement and where I kind of have it cataloged. So um, I know like um, the the gist of the most relevant things that the witness said. So in the event they say something that contradicts what they said earlier, um, I have the grand jury transcript in order to impeach them. Um, It's not enough to just have a... Uh, you know, a very vague understanding of what they said. You need to know down to the wire what they said so that if something strikes you as being inconsistent to what they said earlier, you can immediately refer to your notes and to their statement, pick it out, and be ready to impeach them on it uh, when you cross-examine them. Uh, you, of course, need to make sure that it is relevant enough and that it's not you know something minor that would not be collateral to the matter because then you know you're it's going to be ob- objected to. So to the extent that it ha- bears relevance, it's material, and um, you know it shows the uh, the contradiction in the witness's uh, testimony from what they said earlier to what they said today. Then you want to definitely set it up as impeachment. Uh, it's gen- generally admissible only to impeach, uh, not for its truth. Um, this prior inconsistent statement, in other words, only to impeach, not for its truth, not affirmative or substantive evidence. But if the prior inconsistent statement was given under oath and at a trial, hearing, or other proceeding, or in a deposition, such a state such a statement would then be admissible for its truth. So, for example, we have a prosecutor who calls the witness to implicate the defendant in the crime. The witness, however, exculpates the defendant. Can the prosecutor use a prior inconsistent statement signed, uh, a prior written signed statement, prior inconsistent written signed statement of the witness to impeach? Yes. Does such a statement come in for its truth? No any difference if the prior inconsistent statement of the witness was given under oath before the grand jury that indicted the defendant yes the statement would then be admissible for its truth so we don't want to confuse this with the fact that the grand jury testimony of an unavailable witness is not usually admissible against the the accused under the former testimony exception here the declarant is available and is able to be cross-examined at the time of the trial so um despite the fact that um, the statement would be admissible for its truth um, you have the opportunity to cross-examine and to um you know attack their credibility um you know for whether they were telling the truth last time or this time or who knows extrinsic evidence is admissible to prove the prior inconsistent statement Uh, is there a foundation that's necessary before using the extrinsic evidence The witness should be afforded an opportunity to explain or deny the making of the inconsistent statement. A prior inconsistent statement of a party is an admission that is always fully admissible for its truth. In this hypothetical, we have a plaintiff suing the defendant for damages, alleging that the defendant was speeding at the time of the accident. At the trial, the defendant testifies that at the time of the collision, he was only traveling at 15 miles per hour. The plaintiff in rebuttal then calls the investigating officer who testifies that the defendant told the officer at the scene that he, the defendant, was driving at 70 miles per hour at the time of the collision. Is the officer's testimony admissible? Yes, the officer's testimony would be admissible as evidence of a prior inconsistent statement. Does it come in, and this is the follow-up question, does it come in for its truth or only to impeach. The statement comes in for its truth because the defendant is a party to this lawsuit, and his statement is an admission that he was, in fact, driving 70 miles per hour at the time of the accident. So this statement goes to a fact that is directly in dispute whether the defendant was speeding at the time of the accident. the scope of the prior inconsistent statement. The witness's response is limited by the collateral matter rule. Matter rule. So for example, if the witness testifies that the defendant's sweater was green, on cross-examination, um, the witness is asked, did you tell X that the sweater was blue? If the witness says, no, I didn't tell him that, X can't be called to rebut the witness's answer. Um, It ends right there. We don't want to have a trial within a trial within a trial, and the basis would be the collateral matter rule. Even the credibility of a hearsay declarant can be impeached under Federal Rule of Evidence 806. Felony convictions not involving dishonesty. These are covered by Federal Rule 609A. Um, Felony convictions um, are crimes punishable by death or imprisonment in excess of one year. Uh, These crimes may be admissible to impeach, provided the court determines that the probative value of the evidence outweighs its prejudicial effect. Convictions um, are subject to sanitization if they meet certain criteria. In New Jersey, we have the case of Sands Brunson. And what this means is that uh, to the extent that a judge finds that a conviction is admissible um, and that it can be introduced uh, to impeach, the credibility of the defendant, Um, these convictions are typically sanitized, um, meaning that uh, the jury never gets to hear the uh, certain aspects of the offense. Um, For example, uh, they don't get to hear the degree. They don't get to hear the the substance of what the offense was itself. Um, And, um, you know, this can be good and this can be bad because the jury, of course, has a wild imagination and you don't want them, you know, uh, surmising or making assumptions that your client was uh, convicted of child molesting when the offenses were merely, um, you know, burglary or, um, you know, something else, maybe third degree related. Uh, but there is a sanitization process that goes on before these convictions are unilaterally entered into evidence. Now, misdemeanor convictions are not admissible to impeach if they do not involve deceit or false statement. Prior convictions are admissible to impeach if the conviction is for the proper kind of crime. So what type of convictions are admissible? These are any crimes, uh, felony or misdemeanor, if they involve one, dishonesty, um, or two false statement. So these are, um, you know, the traditional uh, frauds, larcenies, embezzlements, perjuries, but not robbery or or ordinary larceny because no deceit or false statement. Uh, why not larceny? Well, a robber could be truthful when he says your money or your life. Um, you know, the the idea here is that you know he means what he says. Now recall that a felony. Um, not involving dishonesty, deceit, or false statement is admissible to impeach in the discretion of the court. Um, so it would be up to the judge to make that call. Now there's a uh, the balancing test that would uh, be applied in determining whether um, a crime such, uh, uh, to determine whether a felony conviction um, that does not involve dishonesty, deceit, or false statement should be admissible. Um, the judge has no discretion, oh I'm sorry, uh, I'm, I I want to just get back to this for a second. For crimes involving uh, deceit, um, you know, uh, fraud, these crimes the judge has no discretion to exclude. Uh, discretion deals only with felonies but there is no discretion if that crime involves untruthfulness where a crime involves untruthfulness it automatically comes in for purposes of impeachment without any discretion now we we do have a limitation though the convictions can't be too remote Uh, the general guideline is 10 years if more than 10 years have elapsed from the later of number one, the date of conviction, or two, the date of release from confinement, then the conviction is generally inadmissible subject to the discretion of the court, even if it's a crime of dishonesty or false statement. Uh, So if the court finds that the probative value of introducing a conviction that's greater than 10 years old substantially outweighs its prejudicial effect, then it is admissible. Note, however, that impeachment using a conviction that is more than 10 years old requires that advance written notice be given to the opposing party. Ways to impeach using a conviction by asking the witness intrinsically, extrinsically by offering a certified copy of the judgment of conviction. Um, One of the things as a defense attorney, in order to disarm the prosecutor, if you know your client's testifying, and you know, and you know he has prior convictions, to blunt the impact of the jury hearing it for the first time when the prosecutor stands up to cross-examine him, you might um, ask him, uh, you know, if he has any prior convictions uh, on direct examination. That gives him the opportunity to explain. You know to tell the jury that you know he may have served his time and he paid his debt to society and he's reformed and he's a new person now and he's gone on with his life and done good things rather than the jury hearing it for the first time when the prosecutor asks it the other uh thing that that will harm you in is your reputation and your credibility as a defense attorney because the jury will think that you were hiding it from them by not asking your client that question. Um, So you always, number one, always want to be as credible as possible and the most credible person in the courtroom um, when you are presenting your case. Um, Here is a quick example. Which conviction would most likely be admissible for impeachment? We have a 12-year-old conviction for forgery. well, and then what do we have? What other options? We have a three year old conviction for assault and battery, we have a 10 year old conviction for petty theft, and uh, then an eight year old conviction for murder. Well, the 12 year old conviction for forgery is no good, it's greater than 10 years old, probably won't come in. Forgery is a felony and it does bear on untruthfulness, but this is a poor choice because of the 10 year rule. How about the three year old conviction for assault and battery? Assault and battery doesn't bear on truthfulness, so this type of impeachment would be inadmissible. How about the 10-year-old conviction for petty theft? It's greater than 10 years old. I'm sorry, it's not more than 10 years old. It's uh, a 10-year-old conviction. So it's exactly 10 years old. So it doesn't violate the sacred 10-year rule. More importantly, petty theft is a crime involving untruthfulness. Uh, Petty theft is going to come in without being subject to a balancing test how about the eight-year-old commission for murder first it's less than 10 years old however it doesn't bear on truthfulness but that's okay because murder is a felony Uh, it will be admissible only if the probative value substantially outweighs the prejudicial um, effect it's not a great choice because murder of course is a is the most serious offense Um, and um, one of the most serious crimes, and is uh, too inflammatory, so it probably would be barred. Uh, Here we have specific acts of deceit or lying. Uh, They can be asked about on cross-examination. These are questions on cross-inquiring into prior unconvicted acts relating to truthfulness. Uh, These are elements of bad act impeachment. They must be in the form of a question on cross-examination. They must inquire into prior unconvicted acts. And they must involve deceit or lying. So an example might be one where the witness is asked on cross-examination, did you embezzle money from your employer? It's a question it's on cross-examination embezzling money is an unconvicted act because there's no conviction mentioned and embezzlement relates to truthfulness it's dishonest to embezzle so this would be a proper form of bad act impeachment bad act impeachment of course is limited to good faith questioning you can't ask the witness did you embezzle money from your employer if you have no facts no reasonable basis for asking such a question i mean my gosh um that could potentially be grounds for a mistrial if you were to ever make um, a as bold and as blanket um, a statement in the form of a question when you had no basis for asking it. Um, there's also ethical, severe ethical ramifications that could come about as a result. Uh, no extrinsic evidence is permitted in this example. Here, the witnesses asked, did you file a false and fraudulent income return in 2001? She answers, no, I did not. At this point, no other witnesses can be called to contradict her answer, even if a witness is waiting in the wings to testify that that, that, uh, she told her, that the witness told her that she did file a false and fraudulent return in 2001 in order to cheat the IRS. Such evidence would be extrinsic evidence on a collateral matter and would be excluded under the collateral matter rule. We have bad reputation or opinion for truth and veracity. This is covered by rule of evidence 608A. The proof of reputation or opinion is limited to the character trait of untruthfulness. Uh, Rehabilitation after impeachment. When can you rehabilitate? Only after there has been a direct attack. A good reputation for truth may be shown if impeachment involved a character attack. Uh, So again, bad must come before good prior inconsistent statement to rebut an express or implied charge of recent fabrication or improper influence or motive. Uh, Not usually to rebut charge of a prior inconsistent statement. So how about um, this uh, rebutting a charge of recent fabrication or improper influence? Um, It comes up in this context. You call a witness who testifies for your client. On cross, the opposing counsel implies that you unduly influenced the trial testimony of this witness when you spent four days with him in May uh, to prepare him. You now offer to show that in January, four months before you met this witness, the witness gave a statement to the police which was perfectly consistent with his present in court testimony. Would that be admissible? Yes, it's admissible for both its truth, uh, for its truth as well, uh, for its truth uh, as well as substantive evidence in the case. Because again, the um, insinuation or the inference that the cross-examining attorney was trying to uh, bring out um, in uh, in uh, questioning the witness was that um, the length and time that he spent in preparation uh, with his attorney uh, lent itself Uh, potentially lent itself to having his testimony shaped in a way that would um, be most favorable for the case. And to the extent that this witness had given an earlier statement to the police, which was perfectly consistent with his present in court testimony, that would be admissible for its truth as substantive evidence in the case. Uh, Must be a premotive statement and admissible for its truth. It um, doesn't have to be under oath or given as part of a formal proceeding. There are other areas of impeachment under 609. There's pardons, uh, juvenile adjudications being used to impeach. Uh, there's convictions under appeal. Um, but we're going to head in straight into hearsay right now. I'm just going to ask you for one second. Okay, there's a special code that I have to read you for today's program, um, and that program code relates to um, those who are seeking credit for the New York portion uh, of their CLE. It's M as in Michael, D as in DeBliss, 3320-42723. Once again, MD, 3320-42723. Hearsay. So I think a good way to start out with hearsay is by breaking it down and starting with a breakdown of what is meant by a statement. Uh, how How do the rules define a statement? It's defined as an oral or written assertion, or two, nonverbal conduct of a person if it's intended by him as an assertion. So here we have an example. The defendant is charged or let's say Dave here, is charged with driving while intoxicated. Not every case is a criminal case. At his booking, a videotape is made showing him to be behaving in an abusive manner and with slurred speech. David moves to suppress the use of the videotape. Will this motion be granted or denied? Well, a videotape isn't a statement. Let's go back again. A statement is an oral or written assertion or nonverbal conduct of a person if it's intended by him as an assertion. Um, This videotape was not a statement. It wasn't an oral or written assertion, nor uh, nor was it conduct intended by David as an assertion. For example, he didn't stand there at the booking acting abusive and speaking in a slurred way to prove that he was intoxicated. I'm sure that um, as you look back at that tape, in hindsight, he was mortified of his acts. So it was not um, in any way an assertion, uh, oral or written, um, that uh, nor was it conduct intended by him as an assertion that he was drunk as a skunk. The videotape is not a statement, therefore it can't be hearsay, uh, which is an out-of-court statement offered for its truth. Nor can it be an admission, a statement of a party offered against him. So the motion here would be denied because the videotape is relevant um, evidence. Now, in this example, Paul was injured in a windsurfing collision with a powerboat. Paul's now suing the owner of the power boat. At issue is the wind speed at the time in question. Paul is offering into evidence a computer printout measuring the wind speed. This computer printout was given to him by another boat owner who was an eyewitness. The other boat owner has in his boat a sophisticated electronic weathering device that measures wind speed. And I guess that's what clocked the speed. Uh, Paul has now taken this computer printout of the wind speed and wants to introduce it into evidence. Is it admissible? It's inadmissible, um, unless there's a foundation uh, as to the accuracy and the proper condition, working condition of the weathering device. Uh, Why are business records and hearsay incorrect choices if you're basing your objection or you're basing um, your uh, reason for Bringing it, introducing it on those two grounds? Well, a computer printout is not a statement. A statement must be a human statement, not one made by animal or machine. Because the computer printout is not a statement, it cannot be hearsay nor a hearsay exception. Declarant, we hear a lot about uh, declarant in the hearsay rules. A declarant is a person who makes a statement or assertion. The main issue when it comes to declarants is whether the declarant is whether the declarant is the same person as the in-court witness, or is the declarant an out-of-court person? So very important to distinguish because sometimes you—it's easy to blur the lines and make assumptions, uh, but you can't assume that the person testifying is the is the declarant, um, meaning the same person as. The in-court witness, uh, or is a declarant an out-of-court person. Um, so, for example, is a declarant the person testifying in court? Is she giving? Uh, is she giving um, evidence of her own statement, or did someone else make the statement that that witness is offering? And hearsay: the definition is that. Um, is an out-of-court statement other than one made by the declarant while testifying at the trial or hearing offered in evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted. This is my approach to hearsay. As a criminal defense attorney, there are so many uh, issues that come up in the course of the trial, uh, but uh, we, we, we do see um, many objections come up in this area. So I've tried to create a quick checklist or steps to go through um, so that I am quick on my feet and when I raise an objection on the grounds of hearsay. My first step is to analyze the out-of-court statement. Determine first if there's a statement and then isolate it. Step two, I want to determine who the declarant is. For example, who made the statement? Is it the person in court testifying? Is it a party or is it some other witness? Step three, of course, determine the purpose for which the evidence is being offered. Is it being offered substantively for its truth, or is it merely being offered to impeach and attack credibility? So there are two possible purposes. If the evidence is being offered for its truth, then it's hearsay. Then and only then do you go on to the fourth step. You don't want to you know, randomly or haphazardly apply hearsay exceptions until you first have decided that the evidence being offered is being offered for its truth. If the evidence being offered is not being offered for its truth, then it is non-hearsay. And step four is apply hearsay exceptions if possible. Under Federal Rule of Evidence 801D, there are four types of statements which by definition are non-hearsay. Uh, These are hearsay exemptions. There are verbal acts, there's non-assertive conduct, there's state of mind. Uh, So let's first take a look at 801D. And these are prior inconsistent statements, prior consistent statements, prior identifications, and admissions. So for prior inconsistent statements, the declarant must be available and the declarant must be subject to cross-examination regarding the statement. Here's the rule. Prior sworn inconsistent statements are admissible both substantively and to impeach. Prior inconsistent statements that are not sworn, not sworn, are only admissible to impeach. Sworn means subject to penalty of perjury at a trial, hearing, or other proceeding. In this example, Wanda testifies that a traffic light was red on direct examination. On cross, she is asked about a statement made in a deposition where she stated that the light was green. The prior statement was made in a deposition. A deposition is sworn and it is a proceeding. Therefore, her prior inconsistent statement that the light was green is admissible both substantively and to impeach because it's a prior sworn inconsistent statement i think it's it's often easier to put sworn between prior and inconsistent as a way to remind yourself that it has to be from a sworn it has to be from a sworn proceeding in order to um, come in Okay, and once again, sworn refers to subject, being subject to the penalty of perjury at a trial, hearing, or other proceeding. Now, let's compare that to a hypothetical where if Wanda had made the prior inconsistent statement to a friend that the light was green. Now, what if they try to introduce that? Well, that prior statement was not sworn and in that case a prior inconsistent statement would come in but it would only come in to impeach it wouldn't come in substantively for um you know uh, for its for the truth of the matter and that's why it's very important to you know know the forum uh or the circumstances in which a prior statement was made In this example, Wanda testifies that he's, or let's say Will testifies that he saw uh, the defendant kill the victim. On cross-examination, Will is asked about a statement that he made in an affidavit where he said, quote, I'm not sure who killed the victim. This prior statement was made in an affidavit and an affidavit is sworn, but recall that an affidavit is not a proceeding. Um, it's 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 not a proceeding where the person would be subject to um the penalty of perjury at a trial hearing um, or other proceeding so in that uh, case this prior inconsistent statement that uh the def- that the defendant wasn't sure who killed the victim would be admissible but only for purposes of impeachment and not for purposes of Uh, substantive evidence. The declarant must be available and the declarant must be subject to cross-examination regarding the statement. So now we're crossing over to prior consistent statements. Uh, Once again, there's a requirement for availability and that the declarant uh, be subject to cross-examination regarding the statement. Prior consistent statements are non-hearsay or offered to rebut a charge of first recent fabrication, or second, improper influence. Prior consistent statements offered to rebut are admitted substantively. So in this example, we have Wanda, who testifies favorably for plaintiff on direct examination. On cross-examination, the defense attorney asks Wanda, uh, I think we should go with Will right now, Will is the one who testifies favorably for the plaintiff on direct. On cross, the defense attorney asks Will if he is um, the plaintiff's ex husband. Will answers yes. Now, this is an inference of bias. Um, The idea being, and I guess there could be some debate here, uh, but of course, Will is going to testify favorably for Paula uh, because at one time he and Paula were married. On redirect, Will may properly testify that he and Paula have not spoken to each other since their bitter divorce three years ago. That would be a proper form of prior consistent statement on redirect to rebut a charge of bias or favoritism. So where the prior consistent statement is offered in rebuttal, it comes in as substantive evidence. Um, So you can see here, how you know uh, how this comes into play in a case like this, there is um, you know, the vibration, there is the um, small um, you know uh, uh, small, um, you know, yeah, small little um, uh, you know uh, idea that there is uh, a bias, that there's an inference of bias uh, by the witness answering, um, by Will answering yes, that he was the plaintiff's, you know, ex-husband. There's that inference of bias that comes into play. And so, you know, the the fact that he was at one time Paula's husband um might suggest that he would testify favorably for Paula because they were married at one time. And so on redirect, Will can properly testify that he and Paula had not spoken to each other since their bitter divorce three years ago. And once again, Um, that comes in um, as substantive evidence for the truth um, of the matter asserted. Not just to blunt the bias, but for its truth that they had not spoken uh, to each other since their bitter divorce three years ago. Prior identifications, the declarant must be available and the declarant must be subject to cross-examination. Uh, prior identification requires a prior statement of identification of a person made after perceiving him. It is non-hearsay, which is offered substantively for its truth. Uh, witnesses testify that a bank robbery was committed by a large man with red hair. The defendant shows up at trial with a shaven head. Jailer is called to testify that when the defendant was first brought to the jail, he had red hair. Uh, would the, would jailer's testimony be admissible as a prior identification or admissible to explain the discrepancy with the witness's testimony? Well, the first choice is wrong, that it would be admissible as a prior identification. However, it does come in under B, um, as admissible to explain the discrepancy with the witness's testimony. Um, Recall that witnesses said that the robbery was committed by a large man with red hair, and now, lo and behold, the defendant has showed up at trial with a shaven head. It's relevant, it will come in, but it's not going to come in as a prior identification. Why not? Well, the definition of a prior identification requires a prior statement of identification. Um, did jailer at a prior time make an identification of the defendant? No. Uh, all he's done is merely is, is merely testify at trial now that when the defendant was first brought to jail, he had red hair. So it's his present testimony. There was no prior uh, statement made by jailer as to uh, what uh, as to whether the defendant did or did not have uh, hair at the time he was first brought to the jail. So it's his present testimony and no prior statement of of identification made. And for lack of a prior statement of identification, choice A, admissible as a prior identification, would be wrong. Um, Now we're gonna get into admissions. Uh, Here we have direct admission. We have admissions by conduct or silence, uh, referred to as adoptive admissions. We have authorized admissions, uh, vicarious admission, and co-conspirators admission. So what is meant by a direct admission? It's a statement of a party offered against him by his opponent. Um, an, an admission is admissible as substantive evidence under 801 D2. it's not hearsay. Admissions are based on gamesmanship, not on trustworthiness. Basically, it's like you made the statement, you stand by it, it can be used against you in court. So we wanna focus on who the declarant is. An admission requires the statement of a party. If the declarant is is a defendant, then there is an admission. So an example, the defendant comes over to the plaintiff after a car accident and says, it was my fault. Statement of a party, here we have the statement of a party, the defendant offered against him by his opponent because the plaintiff now is introducing this um, salacious statement made by the defendant claiming and accepting uh, responsibility for the car accident. And so we've got uh, the opponent advancing this into evidence. It's a statement of a party opponent, the defendant. That is what is meant by admission of a party opponent. Compare what would happen if a bystander, a non-party said to the plaintiff, it was the defendant's fault. Would that be an admission? No, Um, that's an example of inadmissible hearsay. For an admission, it must be a statement of a party, but if a bystander was the declarant, in that case the same statement, it was the defendant's fault, would be viewed as inadmissible hearsay. Now we have admissions by conduct or silence. These are adoptive admissions. Um, evidence of conduct of a party which reasonably supports an inference inconsistent with the party's position is in it is admissible. I'm sorry, admissible as an admission. For an adoptive admission, the circumstances must be such that a reasonable person would have denied the statement. So, for an example, plaintiff is suing his former employer, a corporation, after long-term exposure to a harmful chemical-caused leukemia. The defendant employer denies both, one, that the chemical was unsafe and two, that he knew there was any special danger caused by exposure to the chemical. So those are the two things that's, that are being refuted, the fact that the chemical wasn't safe, and the fact that the def, that um, defendant um, and the fact that he did not know there was any special danger caused by exposure to the chemical. The plaintiff now turns around and seeks to offer into evidence a report which was compiled by the defendant and submitted to a federal agency detailing the harmful effects of the chemical. If that's not the the smoking gun in the case, I don't know what is. Upon objection, the report would be admissible uh, or inadmissible as an adoptive admission by the defense. What do you think? Well, a situation where a party conducts itself inconsistently with its trial contentions is a basis for an admission by conduct. Here, the situation is the one involving the report. The situation of the report where the defendant detailed the harmful effects of the chemical is such that the defendant is conducting itself inconsistently in that report with its denials at trial. At trial, recall what the defendant said, he's denying that the chemical uh, was unsafe and denying that he knew there was any special danger caused by exposure to the chemical. Um, The report, however, is inconsistent with the defendant's denials because it details the harmful effects of the chemical. Um, So, an incorrect answer is uh, admissible to prove notice. Of course, this report would come in to show state of mind and to show notice that the defendant did know there was a danger, but that's not as good an answer as an adoptive admission. Why? Well, with the adoptive admission, as you'll see here, an adoptive admission comes in not just to impeach, The defendant, but it comes in substantively. So not just to show state of mind or to show notice. Recall that substantively means that it comes in for its truth. This evidence would come in not only to show notice that the defendant knew, but also to show that the chemical was unsafe, uh, which comprised the two denials in the suit. By coming in as an adoptive admission, we are refuting both of the defendant's denials. It's a more complete, um, uh, a more complete and um, way of uh, than merely coming in to prove notice. Um, you want it to come in not just for notice, but also substantively for its truth that these chemicals were actually unsafe. Um, that is just you know, it's just. It's a death nail, right? Death nail, right there. It's a the nail in the coffin. Example of another adoptive admission. It's a post-arrest situation. Uh, the silence of an accused cannot be used against him or her. Why? Well, recall that at this point, the accused has been Mirandized and is relying upon the Miranda right of silence. A reasonable person in a situation uh, would remain in a situation like this would remain silent, relying on Miranda. If one of two accused parties says, I didn't do it, the other guy did it, and the other guy just sits there and says nothing, would that change anything? Would that be an adoptive admission? Of course not. Uh, In a post-arrest situation, a reasonable person has an absolute mandatory right to rely on their Miranda rights of silence. Authorized admission. Uh, These are a statement of any person, not necessarily an employee, specifically authorized by a party to speak, which may be offered against the party as an authorized admission. For an authorized admission, authority to speak is required. So a statement of an agent, this is what comes up mostly in situations like this one, agents and employees. A statement of an agent or an employee made First, during the existence of the relationship, and second, concerning a matter within the scope of employment. Uh, These such a statement, such a statement is a vicarious admission and may be offered against a party. Uh, No authority to speak is required. So, example, we have a truck driver. He has an accident while making a routine business delivery. At the scene of the accident, he tells the police officer, quote, I guess that I had too many beers at lunch. Um, This is First, a statement of a party's employee. Second, it's made during the existence of the relationship. The truck driver was making his routine business deliveries at the time of the accident. And third, it's within the scope of employment because he was carrying out a business delivery at the time. This statement would be deemed proper as a statement being made within the scope of employment. How about co conspirators' admissions? I'm always fascinated by these. Um, these are statements of co conspirators um, made first during the course of the conspiracy and second in furtherance of the conspiracy, and they're admissible against the party. So the rationale behind these is that each co conspirator is viewed as an agent of all the other co conspirators. Um, That is why the co-conspirator's admission may be admissible against the party. Uh, So anything said by a co-conspirator, for example, in a racketeering case, um, could be used uh, that that was made during the course of that racketeering conspiracy and in furtherance of it would be admissible against the party. Uh, proof of the existence of the underlying conspiracy must be established by a preponderance of evidence verbal acts and i see we are um, a little bit over already i'm going to wrap up with verbal acts uh, but i i do want to just cover this briefly before we end these are statements whose relevance is independently significant of their truth There are transactional words and there are tortious words. So, for example, the actual words of a contract, a will, or a deed um, by themselves have independent significance and they are non-hearsay. Similarly, tortious words, actual words of libel or slander in a defamation action, these actual words have independent significance and by definition are non-hearsay. Uh, the actual defamatory words in a defamation action have independent legal significance for example in a defamation action the plaintiff offers a witness's testimony that quote the defendant told a group of friends that plaintiff regularly turns in his employee's work as his own because he's so incompetent that's the defamatory statement Uh, This statement is admissible as non-hearsay because it's being offered as a verbal act. It's being offered to prove that the defendant made the statement and not to prove that the plaintiff, in fact, was so incompetent that he regularly turned in his employer's work. Uh, Why would the plaintiff ever want to um, acknowledge uh, the truth of a statement like that? That's the very reason why the plaintiff has filed for defamation in the first place, that this is a bogus statement and it was... Untrue and that it sullied his reputation. So, again, it would be preposterous to think that the plaintiff was introducing this self uh, deprecating statement into evidence for its truth when the statement is a source of his defamation action. By introducing the statement as proof that these words were uttered by the defendant, it has independent significance and will be admissible as non hearsay in the form of a verbal act. Oh, I also want to just uh, briefly cover non-assertive conduct. This is behavior which the actor does not intend to operate as a communicative statement, but which may, in fact, be so interpreted. It's um, a non-assertive statement is admissible as non-hearsay. So this is the ship captain example that we read about in law school. Um, the, fish, the ship captain prepared and inspected his vessel. After he finished doing it, he took his family, to, brought them on board, and sailed away. This is the classic textbook example of non-assertive conduct. The captain was not putting his family on board to prove the seaworthiness of the vessel. He was putting them on board so that he could sail away and go on his sojourn with his family. Uh, it wasn't His conduct wasn't intended as an assertion. Uh, Similarly, people opening umbrellas as it starts to rain in New York are doing so to protect themselves from getting wet. They're not opening their umbrellas to show all the people up in the office buildings uh, that it's raining out. Um, A statement requires conduct intended as an assertion. This conduct of opening up an umbrella is non-assertive conduct and non-assertive conduct is defined as non-hearsay. Um, There is a comparison here. Assertive conduct is hearsay. So what would be examples of here of assertive conduct? Um, Those would be pointing a finger to give directions, nodding your head, yes or no. A football referee signaling a touchdown by raising both hands over his head. These are all examples of assertive conduct um, and assertive conduct is hearsay. Okay, so we are going to stop here Um, I want to thank you for being a part of this presentation, and if you have any questions at any time, feel free to uh, give me a call, send me an email. My door is always open. It's been a pleasure to present to you.